Episode of Dear Adam Silver, a show about sports, art, and the creative space they share. My name is Abigail Smithson, and I am a visual artist and longtime fan of the game of basketball. For today's episode, I spoke with Seth Rodney, who is an art and culture critic based in New York City. He writes and edits for Hyperallergic and teaches at Parsons School of Design. Okay, so I think that I wanted to. I had a couple places I wanted to start, but I think I found uh, I think I found a good spot. And this <clears throat> is coming from a lecture I heard of yours from a few months ago, I believe, where you said, "I want to believe that words can start a fire." And mm. I was hoping if we could talk a little bit about that in relation to your work, of course, but also maybe in relation to your work in the in 2019 and in the culture that we live in right i think what i meant when i said that was um was for a long time i had wrestled in my life with making the decision to either go in the direction of uh of art making and i did that for some time i was a photographer in fact when I was at the tail end of getting my English degree. You know, really, kind of roughly halfway through undergrad at Long Island University, Brooklyn campus. I fell in love with photography, and and it felt like it was the one art form. And I might have been mistaken about this, but it felt like it was the one art form, visual art form, that was most easily accessible to me, because I didn't feel like I had any facility with drawing and painting. So. I worked in photography for a long time. I worked um, through undergrad and then I took a year after undergrad was over to work up a portfolio and then apply to grad school. And then I got into UC Irvine and went out to Irvine and and did two years and got my master's degree, master's fine arts. Uh, and for a long time, I had thought, um, sort of from the time I started working on photography until the tail end of the MFA work. I thought that artists might be able to, and I, and I knew of historical examples of artists uh, operating in such a way that they actually kind of changed the discourse around art. And I'm thinking of people like Duchamp, mm-hmm. um, the way that he made a kind of trickster figure, uh, a kind of key way of approaching art practice. Um, and there are a few others. Um, Jean-Michel Basquiat um, mm-hmm. also comes to mind because he changed the ways that critics and collectors and dealers thought about hidden talent, right? I mean, here's this kid off the street who, I mean, he wasn't really off the street, but he seemingly came out of nowhere, tagging right. and bombing. And like Rene Ricard said in his essay, Radiant Child, everyone wanted to catch a bit of Basquiat when he was starting to shine. 
because they didn't want to miss the boat like they had done with Van Gogh. Mm-hmm. Right? They didn't want to make the mistake of not recognizing this kind of you know, genius talent. Uh, so I knew that there were historical examples of artists who had begun to sort of change the ways that we think about art practice and maybe even kind of ripple out um, beyond the precincts of uh, visual art production. But at the same time, I knew that for much of our history, and by our, I mean human beings in the last, I don't know, 200, 300 years, a lot of what has driven, I think, a kind of um, social or political change. And here I'm thinking of the civil rights movement. And here I'm thinking of... Um, the, the student uprising of 1968. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is supported by, driven by, um, conditioned by writing, by people making really, really considered analyses of our socio-political conditions, and essentially. Telling people, well, here's the program. Here's we can get. Here's how we can get out of this shit, right? People like Frantz Fanon, mm-hmm. um, people like um, Martin Luther King, um, uh, people, how, um, uh, uh, theorists and, and historians like um, Pierre Bourdieu or Howard Zinn, um, uh, sociologists like Zygmunt Bauman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, they, I, I've always kind of been unsure of whether it would be, whether I would be more aligned or allied to writing or to art making. And then I think at at coming to the end of my MFA, I, I realized that, frankly, my powers lay in writing. I was just better at that. I, I just have a a keen sense of how language works and how mm-hmm. it can work. And so when I say things like, I think that la- that writing can start a fire, uh, I, I'm saying this in, in sort of several, or I, I'm meaning this in several senses, senses. I mean this in terms of that story that I just laid out of it, certain thinkers in particular moments in time really setting new terms for understanding particular aspects of human existence. You know, Kant did it. Hegel mm-hmm. did it. Um, the other people I mentioned, um, like um, Frantz Fanon certainly did it. They gave a kind of direction. They also, they also supplied fuel, right? And they also supplied a way of thinking through these really, really naughty problems um, that had bedeviled people for a long time, like the problem of um, of segregation. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly, uh, physical um, action, sitting in lunch counters, um, um, long-term, long-range planning, um, marches and demonstrations over time made a huge difference. That, that's the heart of the civil rights movement, was that kind of organized uh, 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 protest and refusal to accept 
uh, segregation as a law of the land. But that was also always um, aided and, and fueled by writing, by the kind of considered thought, you know, letter from a Birmingham jail, right? So I'm really aware, and I fully, and I really am, I believe that um, writing can do that. Writing can not bring about social change. I, I think that's putting too fine a point other than, frankly, I'm not, I'm, I'm not really sure what brings about social change. I actually think it's a combination of things. But, I mean, even think of the, think of the bad examples. Things like Ayn Rand, how Ayn Rand somehow became the poster right. child of, um, of uh, a supply-side um, neoliberal um, ideologies forwarded by people like the former Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. I mean, there's a grown man talking about a woman who thinks that, uh, claiming that a woman who forwarded a, a, a notion that selfishness was the sort of highest human value uh, was lay at the heart of his political program and, and like justified this. I mean, that's, uh, but I mean, writing does do that. Like even, I mean, even in the worst case examples in, 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 in people like Ayn Rand, um, that that fire that she lit gets lights a lot of torches, and people mm-hmm. are still carrying them for her. So I'm I'm convinced that, and this is in a way saying that is kind of painting myself into a corner. I think because um, when I say that, I also feel like, oh wow, so the burden's on me. Like I have to come up with something that is really important, that is really significant, that's crucial, that somehow changes, again, changes the game, changes the discourse. And, you know, you fall into, I fall into that trap, at least, of that notion of individual genius, genius sort of carrying the day. And I don't, I know, I know that that's not true. Um, I know that that's not true. Uh, I know it's not, it's not just about individual geniuses, but um, there's a way in which I'm aware that we fight in this, especially in this country, especially now, we fight in the territory of ideas. We fight for ground uh, uh, with ideas. And and if you can articulate the idea in a way that really resonates with people, you can begin think to make some sort of actual real world difference. So that's what I meant. Yes, I, I, so this is very interesting and very helpful to me. And I, when I heard you say those words, I was thinking of it from a sort of poetic sense of what, what is fire and what does fire Mm. do and what does fire offer? And there is this idea of building a fire, which is something that you're producing something. And there is also, of course, the actual reality of fire being this really destructive Force, and I think that mm. the way we are handling each other's words right now, it can go either way in such an extreme way all the time mm. to where we are um, building up and and breaking down so easily, so fast. Mm, yeah, I agree with that. I think that public discourse in the U.S. especially is just, it's almost always premised on a contest. The idea is that you're somehow going to, or rather the, 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 one of the foundational ideas to engaging in people in a public sphere 
and, and, and you know the platforms kind of you know vary it could be you know you know talking head shows that that show up on like cnn or and msnbc or twitter or social you know social media platforms like twitter and, and facebook but what i find mostly is that sort of regardless of the platform or the venue a lot of public discourse is premised on most of it is premised on contest and the idea that there's going to be a winner and a loser and you're going to fight it out and there's something kind of gradatorial about it and and it ends up making us stupid because we end up doing things like uh asking rick santorum to come on to talk about what happened this past week with um uh the current president's policies um and and i mean and it's ridiculous. I mean, he's. I mean, you're basically they invite people on, um, and I'm not saying this about Rick Santorum necessarily, but they will invite people on the show um, who are clearly white supremacists or clearly liars. I mean, what, what's the point of having Kellyanne Conway right. appear on anything to say anything about anything? Because you know that she's just going to lie, and she does it in such a sort of brazen way. I, I just, I, I just, I just, I just do not know what to say anymore. Um, but yes. because because we are, we are, we arrange, and, and you know, people like Jeffrey Zucker who who runs CNN is partly to blame for this. And let's move this too. When I mean, he was very clear in saying that uh, his coverage of um, uh, um, Agent Orange. Um, really helped his his candidacy, and he said it might be bad for the U.S., but it was great for CBS because they got numbers, right? Mm-hmm. They got people watching them, and they were been advertising a lot, a lot, make money, and of a fifth. Um, they are partly, at least, responsible. But again, you know, there's this idea, this overarching ideology that um, the way that American public discourse should work is that it should be a contest, right? That it should be about winners and losers. That right. it should not. It should not be about gaining insight or finding um, ways to live that are healthier and more conducive to happiness. It, it's just about contest. So um, <clears throat> I think that that's a real failing of um, the U.S. Um, culture here. That's a that's a deep failing um and it's something that it's something that really it 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 more than bothers me it really it bedevils me i feel like it just every day i kind of think about that and and how do you think how does art play a role in that potentially good good question so art does a few things. I'm not of, <clears throat> I'm going to start out with what it doesn't do, I think. I, I don't think it, it brings about social change. I really don't. I think that art does a great thing in that it operates in the, in the, in the realm of representation, of symbols, right? So we're all, so art sort of at its basic premise. And of course, there are forms of art that don't do this. There are forms of art like um, that, that actually intervene in social relations in a very sort of direct way, like Tanya Bruguera's work does that. Mm. Social practice artists generally are about that. 
But the majority of art making, art production, <clears throat> um, is really about dealing with representation. You represent ideas, you represent feelings, you represent thoughts, you represent um, experience uh, in these kind of abstracted ways through you know, this image or this sculpture or this installation. So art actually starts off on the ground at, at which at which um, this, these larger issues and problems are, are situated. The, this is the ground in which those larger problems are situated because, because um, you know, profound, in a very profound way, the civil rights movement was about making black people visible and present in the culture in a way that they were not before. And, and and it was a that that movement was about uh, uh, having them be part of the culture in a way that they weren't hidden in the back room, right? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so art um, clearly um, does a lot of heavy lifting in these kinds of social movements. Um, I mean, it's hard to think about the civil rights movement without thinking about, you know, that iconic image of the German shepherd tearing, yeah. half tearing the, the trousers off that man, um, and while the police uh, are looking on. Um, mm -hmm. It's hard to think about the civil rights movement without thinking about those images of um, John Lewis leading people across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, um, along, I think along with Martin Luther King, and having the, the police just descend on them like a swarm mm -hmm. of bees and start beating them. Um, and the images did a lot of heavy lifting to tell the rest of the world what this system of Jim Crow um, segregation was, what, was what, what that lived reality was actually like. Um, so art does a lot, um, especially in, in social movements, especially images that um, that give to others who are outside of um, that reality, who don't see or don't feel that oppression that certain oppressed groups do. Um, art is really crucial for that. But I don't think in and of itself, art makes a social change. Again, because looking at, I, I, I like to use the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement, without that kind of conscientious organizing and political, uh, uh, what's the word, machinations, I guess, um, without that kind of organized action, mm -hmm. you, we would not have got to the civil rights bill. We would not have got to the Fair Housing Act. Mm -hmm. It just, it, you know, certainly, it wasn't, it wasn't just art that did that. Um, and the real heavy lifting was done by the, by people actually putting their bodies on the line. So art doesn't do that, right? But what art can do, I think, is it can sensitize everyone to the finer and subtler aspects of being a human being of what it's like to be a human being now, to actually have all the senses that we have, and we have way more than five, um, and to have some of them be activated when you are in front of something that you had not seen before, that calls upon you to feel in a more expansive way, 
to see more, to hear more, to feel more, to understand more. I think just just being just doing that is possibly enough. Just sensitizing us to what it is to be a human being in a fuller way. I think that I think that very few things, um, maybe nothing else, um, um, does that the way that art does. Um, I think that art gives us a, a glimpse of what it can feel like to occupy a different sort of realm of feeling and um, a realm of thought. And I think that, you know, that kind of transport, it never gets old. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's always worthwhile. So I have so many thoughts now <laughs> trying mm-hmm. to think of, of a way to carry on this conversation of representation and how, mm-hmm. what role it plays and how we understand each other and what we, you were saying and expanding our capacity to mm-hmm. feel uh, mm-hmm. through an image, uh, mm-hmm. which I agree is, I think, both very uh, reactive and and just a normal thing for a human a human to have, and then also difficult when we are looking at a lot of images to have reactions to all of them. And I was thinking, I was just, and I think that's why images played such a big role in the. Uh, Vietnam War and in the, during the civil mm. rights movement and in allowing for human reaction to take place mm-hmm. and, and then there to be a, an action involved in mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I'm just thinking about something else that I, I had heard you say about when sometimes you walk into a gallery and you just stay for 15 seconds. And I, mm-hmm. I am interested in this idea of, of how when, when you know you know that this is not the this is not the right time. This is not the experience that that you're looking for, or that or that you feel like you can access or be accessed by. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that happens too. And I think a lot of contemporary art making. Did, well, there are two things I, I want to talk about with regard to contemporary art making and feeling that I can tell within a matter of seconds, a matter of seconds, whether or not a thing is essentially um for me mm-hmm. um one is that there's a system of art making now a system of production a system which entails art schools and um collectors and um dealers and galleries and museums that encourage people to just make stuff mm-hmm. so there i i think because it is a system and you know systems don't systems have agents they have actors within them but they don't have a sort of consciousness in and of themselves so but they can privilege certain kinds of actions and i think that the system we have of our production really privileges making uh, it, it just privileges um, expression. So because it does that, there is, I think, less emphasis on serious, seriously thinking, seriously considering 
what the point of making is. I mean, do we really need to make things? And by that, I mean, like real, like things, like objects. I mean, some people don't deal with this. Some people deal more with imagery that's um, digital. Mm-hmm. They deal with film. They deal with, but I mean, with film, you're still dealing with an object. But primarily, that's primarily, well, there's an emphasis in the system on making and expressing the self. Sometimes that self that I encounter, and I, again, in a very sort of abstracted way, right? Because it's a representation. Sometimes that self is not at all interesting to me. It just isn't. And it doesn't. And I can tell when I'm in a gallery with a certain representation of that self, of that artist's ego or ambitions or ideas, that that mode, form of expression is not going to nourish me. It's not going to reward me. But I mean, you know, but you know this, like, I mean, or rather every, sort of everybody knows this. Mm-hmm. Everybody yeah. within the sound of our voices knows. Like when you walk in, when you turn on the radio station, turn on the radio and you listen to the first song that comes on, that song is not necessarily going to nourish you or reward you. It may absolutely not be what you need to hear in the moment. Uh, um, and, you, you know, you may use words like good, like it's not good. Okay, um, there are plenty of other songs to listen to. Just because you walk into a gallery and somebody has taken the time and energy and attention to make something doesn't mean that it's for you. It doesn't mean that it's, it's, it's what you need or what, or what can be transformative for you in that, in that, in that moment. So coupled with that that fact coupled with the fact that the system just keeps producing shit you know sure ad infinitum <laughs> makes it makes it very it makes the chances of me walking to any random gallery and seeing something that again and i like saying it this way will reward me makes the chances of that rather slim As an art writer and an art critic, is it your job to call attention to the things that reward you with a within a critical eye, or do you also feel like it is important to talk about the things that don't reward you and why they don't reward you? Yes, I think all of the above. I think it's really so. I want to. I want to. I want to also just talk a little bit about the way you worded that, because I, I, I do think it is important. And I'm not saying that the way you worded it is at all incorrect. I don't think it is. But one of the things you said was whether it's my job. And that's a kind of crucial way to think about what I do, because that has, has everything to do with who's employing me and what they're employing me to do. Mm-hmm. Right, hypoallergic employs me, and thank goodness for <laughs> hypoallergic because they actually employ me to tell my readers what I think. I remember one of the first, one of the first, when I was a contributor back in 2015, I'd written a piece. I don't even remember what show it was, um, but I written it. And, oh, it was about interns. That's right. It was about interns and my own experience with working with interns when I worked in a 
gallery in the Lower East Side. And he talked to me, like took me out for lunch at some point, and he talked, and he said, you know, I think you pulled back on that one. And I was like, what? He said, yeah, you pulled back. I was like, well, I thought it was just kind of, you know, reporting what, what I was supposed to report. Yeah. And I should say, writing reviews and, and writing and doing reporting are very different things. Um, but he said, no, we want, to, we want to know what you think. And that was kind of shocking to me because I spent the previous, I don't know, seven years uh, working on a PhD thesis, and I really had learned to take out the eye. Um, mm-hmm. Take out the eye almost, almost. I think there are maybe two places in the entire thesis, which is probably, I don't know, 75,000 words, like, you know, close to 200 pages. I think with, with the index, it was like over 200 pages. Um, there were maybe two instances where I said I, where I used the pronoun I. So it was um, news to me that people would be interested in hearing from the I. Uh, so in terms of my job, part of w- how I understand my job comes from my boss, Hrag Vartanian, the editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic, who has essentially given me a wide berth to explore what I think is important. He trusts me. And I really value that. So what I've, the conclusions I've come to about what my job needs to be is that given the lay of the land, I think it's really important to push forward the work of people of color. I think it's, I think it's crucial. I think it's very crucial, too, to push forward the work of women because they have been largely uh, pushed to the periphery. Uh, in the sort of canonized discourse post uh, World War II, up until maybe this last generation, where we st- where the, the 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 sort of glacial ice has started to thaw, right, and we're starting to have conversations about how crucial it is to have mm, representation within art institutions be more honestly reflective of the general population. So partly, I consider that not just my, I mean, yes, my job, because I happen to work for hypologic and hypologic politics are precisely that, but also my responsibility. I take it on as my responsibility to find the artists who aren't necessarily getting a lot of traction and shine some light on them. I also think it's my responsibility to talk precisely about why some art fails. Um, I think it's super important to point out when a, in a gallery like Almin Resh on the Upper East Side um, uh, put together a show last year, which is essentially a kind of version of the magical Negro tale, where they put a bunch of modernist artists next to a bunch of West African sculpture and said, oh, look at how what the modernists learned, and, and they learned it from these indigenous people, and uh, isn't that great? And I'm like, yeah, motherfucker, but you don't even name these these artists, right? Like you, it's not like you're putting them on the same uh, on the same plane or in the same. Uh, uh, you're not treating them with the same consideration. Right. You're saying As essentially, yeah, yeah, you're saying essentially that these European artists who went on to be art stars use these other folks as stepping stones. And isn't it nice that, that they willingly play that part of stepping stones? Like, no, it's not nice. It's not okay. 
um, this is some bullshit. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't, I didn't say that in my review, but I said something that essentially amounted to that is that you can't keep telling this story and expect it to have traction. It just doesn't, it's not right. Not only is it mistaken, it's just not, I mean, it's, you know, it's not, it's not morally right. It's not ethically right. So I think it's important to do that. I think it's important to call galleries that do uh, that kind of thing and call them to task. I also think it's important to point out that black artists who are in the pantheon do work that is not great. I mean, I thought Rashid Johnson's show at Hauser and Worth, I don't think it was like two years ago. It was so overproduced. Oh, Jesus, it was so big and... You just it just looked like they they backed up a hose to a money truck and just started spraying money everywhere. Um, it just it was it was too, it was too, it was too much and it was too much in a way of the concepts or rather the symbols that they were using were heavy. They were heavyweight and they were very much about black identity and uh, shea butter and and references to his father and. Mm -hmm. This huge bower with a with a live with a pianist playing inside, and, and a library of books and it was, but it was all over. It was again. It felt like it wasn't focused. Like he hadn't figured out exactly what he wanted the symbols to say. He just figured if he put them in a room together in in, in certain sort of um, provocative ways, that you get meaning from that. And then it just, and then I just felt like it. No, it didn't. It didn't do that. It didn't do that at all. So I feel like it is my job to the extent that people are hyperallergic, my boss particularly, want, to want me to cover the things that I am interested in covering anyway. Mm -hmm. But I take it on as my responsibility to shine a light on artists that may not be as well-known or as welcome and within the precincts of blue chip galleries, um, and I feel like it's and I feel like it's my responsibility to keep people honest, to say the thing that even I mean, even if it's uncomfortable, even if it makes people squirm, if it makes if it if it doesn't get me invited to certain places, I'm still going to tell the truth as I see it. I mean, I, one another example is in the Out of Easy Reach show, which is um, curated by I think it was Allison. Ah, oh, she's at Crystal Bridges, I think. Um, this is in Chicago? Yeah, but she, she's at Crystal Bridges okay. now, and I think she's been there for a couple years. Um, um, but yes, the, the show was in Chicago. It's at four different sites out of Easy Beach. She has work, works by, well, it's, it's basically all work by women. And um, Stone Island was one of the venues, so it was DePaul University Gallery, and then two others. I think four or four galleries, something like that. Anyway. I ended up talking about the work of Torquasi Dyson, and Torquasi Dyson is really smart. She, I've, I've talked with her, I've hung out with her, I've um, gone to a couple of, of talks where she's talked with um, uh, Deanna Lawson, mm -hmm. where she's talked with someone, I forget her name, but she's a, uh, an academic at the Drawing Center. I've been to her studio. And I still don't really get her work. I just don't. And I said that in this review. I said, you know, there's a way in which she talks about the work uh, that is really engrossing and, again, sort of hard to follow. 
But when you see the work in person, it just doesn't, it just doesn't live up to that rhetoric. It just doesn't, for me, mm-hmm. yet. Um, and she made some, some paintings that I think are really quite visually wonderful, but that's not really what her practice is about. Uh, and, you know, people, people weren't necessarily happy to read that. <laughs> they, weren't, yeah. they weren't thrilled to hear me, hear me say that Tokwase Dyson isn't the best thing since sliced bread. But I, I, I need to tell the truth. I need to tell the truth. Yeah, I think I think that's a great bottom line to have um, mm-hmm. in your in your own practice. Uh, seems helpful to the conversation moving forward. I, I, I say, agree. Yeah, um, I'd love to try and tie in your some of your writing about sports, and I was just going to mm. read uh, something that you had written if that's okay, just as a prompt for both of us. So, organized sports may be one of the great achievements of the modern state. They provide a means of public release of frustration and they model the achievements of a supposedly meritocratic society. They also locate and inscribe a tribal identity that at times appears to transcend race and social class. But the awful truth is that it doesn't. And now I understand why audiences are so enraged by athletes taking a knee because these men and women are our dreams, manifesting a grace that the rest of us lack, a grace we accept to stay, expect to stay aloft in the air. Mm. So, I th- yeah, yeah I, I was very, I think that was an, a nice, both poetic and direct way of explaining our, as spectators, our relationship to athletes. Mm-hmm. And as a society, our relationship to sports. And I guess I I want to know what your relationship is to sports as both the person you are and the art critic that you are and mm. and how you watch them and how you interact with them and what you think they, what can they accomplish in their, if we, if there weren't issues of social justice and and race and all of these things built into to sports and, and the body and how it's used and whose body's being used by who, like what, mm. what can sports, what can sports accomplish and what can watching mm. sports accomplish? I know that I just asked about 10 questions. So whichever you want to answer. <laughs> yeah, no, that's fine. That's fine. I think it's a, it's a conversation. And I think you brought up some really provocative and important things. I, I, um, I absolutely appreciate that. Um, so my relationship to sports is that I have, <clears throat> I was for a long time in my life, an athlete. I don't think I was a particularly good one. I was good. I don't think I was great. Um, and I think I started too late. Mm-hmm. I was a, I was a fencer for something like fourteen years, or maybe it was longer. Wow. I don't remember exactly, but yeah, I started late. I started in my twenties. And I love fencing. I am actually good at it. I was good because um, I have a very, I have a very, I have a very long reach, and I have pretty good hand-eye coordination and strong legs. So I could fence for hours. Um, 
And I, I always wanted to be, before I started fencing, I really wanted to be a great basketball player. I just never had the, I never had the coordination. I mean, I kind of knew that in high school mm-hmm. when I'd play a lot. Uh, I just didn't have it. I, the, the ways that guys could control the ball and, and sort of read defenses and um, all of the, oh, just all of the skills that a good basketball player has. I just didn't have those. Um, but I wanted to be an athlete. I mean, I like, I like the exertion I like being in my body in that way. I like being, I like feeling like I have uh, a tool at my disposal that I can use in ways that I want to. Um, being embodied feels really important to me. Uh, so when I when it comes to talking about sports, I think because I have this sort of initial deep appreciation for what sports can be for me. Um, or, uh, yeah, that I come to it taking it seriously. I, I, and, and then it, it, looking at it from a kind of sociological aspect, uh, which I also can do because I've done a PhD in, in, in doing that, in the course mm-hmm. of doing that, I've read a bit of sociology and read really, really read in such read and 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 studied um, kind of collective human action and how that can be really indicative of the kinds of values and beliefs and assumptions a culture has. So, given that kind of training, I see it was it, it was sort of not not easy, but it was sort of it was sort of what I would expect myself to do in looking at uh, a show um, like that show at La Long Gallery. Um, the, and you just read from that review, from my review of that show. Is, uh, I forget the name of the show, but it was um, curated by Samuel Levy-Jones. Um, so when I, when, I, when I saw that that show was there, I felt like it, it felt great, actually, the review, because it felt like I had an opportunity to bring all these strands of my life together. And partly, you know, because... Um, in the arts community, there isn't a lot of respect generally for organized athletics. There just isn't. Like right, you know, there's yes. a there's even a blog called Bad at Sports. Yeah. Um, and I, and I and I and I think it would be refreshing to be able to actually talk about sports seriously and talk about where they intersect with with um, with art, with aesthetic production. So that felt like an opportunity and. I think that what sports can do generally is is kind of what you alluded to or I alluded to in writing that bit that you read from my review. It is a place of collective fantasy. It's a place where we can look at someone with amazing physical prowess and imagine somehow being like them. living vicariously through them in that moment. And I think that art can do that too. I think that there are moments when you walk into uh, a a gallery and there's something really beautiful or transcendent about a work. And for a moment, you forget who you are. Um, You kind of leave the burden of yourself behind, right? Um, I think so. I think in... in In that way, sports and, and art do similar things. 
Um, I think that, again, it's that, that feeling or that experience of transport, mm -hmm. of getting out of your own body for a moment. I think that's probably why people are so, um, so, what, what's the word, en enthralled, caught up with um, organized athletics. I mean, I thought that Americans were kind of, I mean, U.S. Uh, citizens were kind of crazy about it. Mm -hmm. But then I went to the U.K. and I, I did my... Uh, I did my PhD study over there, and I was—I remember being on the tube. A couple—I mean, this happened on more than one occasion, but I, there were a couple of times I was on the tube, and some people were coming back from a football match, and by football match they mean you know what we call soccer, mm -hmm. and there were so many drunk people on the tube just stamping and singing, and I mean there were they have these you know club songs they sing them together, and it was kind of scary. Because there's so many people and they're all kind of like caught up in this, sure. you know, so, this thing that like could be mass hysteria. <laughs> um, uh, and that made me, yeah, I really didn't like that. I super did not like that. Plus the tube in London is, is claustrophobic as it is. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's smaller than <clears throat> most of the uh, cars that we get in our subway system in New York. Um, but Again, it was indicative of the kinds of, or the kind of, and here's where sports does something that art, I think, generally doesn't do. Uh, it's that moment was indicative of the ways that sports can become this really collective endeavor, even if it's at the le at the level of um, the imagination, right? Because, <coughs> excuse me, none of those guys on the tube stamping and singing. Were, f were likely football players. I mean, they might play on the weekends or whatever. Mm -hmm. But none of them play for Chelsea or Arsenal or sure. Man, Man, Manchester United. But they, but they got all. They have the gear, you know. They have the shirts. They have the scarves. They have the the, the headbands, wristbands, the the tickets. You know, they sports brings people together in a really kind of quasi tribal way. But I don't think art necessarily does as powerfully it just you know we uh, people who who are really beholden to or fans of art don't tend to gather in the same kind of numbers and again maybe that's because it doesn't give that kind of art art is really about challenging Sometimes it's about challenging fantasies. It's about prodding us and poking us and moving us to think or feel things that we don't typically. So it's not hard to imagine that people would not flock to that kind of uh, right. that kind of activity uh, in the ways that they would to organize sports. I just I wish so much that we didn't expect different reactions from the the spectators of both of them, I guess mm. is the best way of saying that. I, I wish that, that viewing a piece of art or that, that, that maybe they could be considered both creative forces and both worthy of um, mass hysteria. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps mm. Um, mm. I just I, I I think that yes I agree that when you go to a gallery or museum you are expected to think and and to 
and I think that is intimidating in many ways. And I wish mm. that the same things were expected of watching sports, that you were expected to think about it in a critical way, that experience in mm-hmm. a critical way, what you were watching, who you were watching, who's broadcasting, mm-hmm. who's refereeing, uh, who, what do the fans look like, and how all of this informs that experience rather than it just being asking no questions. So I feel like it's is my... I am thinking it's my job to ask questions of sports uh, in some way. Right. So that's my right. that's my beef, I guess. Yeah. I com- I completely concur with you. I think that um, <clears throat> it would be quite amazing if we had these sort of collective endeavors where we got together and just um, thought quite seriously about um, whatever it was that we were involved in. Uh, 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 yeah, I mean, there's a kind of, you know, what you're getting at, I think, is that there's a kind of mindlessness that gets encouraged in, mm-hmm. at times in, 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 in sports. Yet, what's interesting is that, you know, there's a whole industry, uh, you yeah, know, it's not interesting, it's more than interesting. It's what's, what's surprising is that there's a whole industry that has sprouted up around analyzing and parsing what sports teams do, right? Like talk radio, oh, yeah. um, tons of tons of shows on ESPN and sport and um, uh, other, other sports platforms. They spend, they spend all day and <laughs> a lot of human um, capital on figuring out why the Patriots won the Super Bowl again. <laughs> like, yeah. it just, I don't, I, I mean, so there is human thought there, right? There's actually, there's a lot of thinking that goes on. I just, it's not particularly, what's the word? Um, it's not critical thinking. That, well, that's not true. Actually, that's not true. There is critical thinking that goes on. It's just, it's not, it's not critical thinking that ever goes beyond the premise of the game. Right. Mm-hmm. The premise of the game is that <clears throat> is that there are these highly paid athletes and highly paid coaches and blah blah blah, and they're trying to do this thing that in order to win, and what they do to win is uh, m- mostly always justified, uh, and 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 yeah, I don't I don't I don't I don't know that that a kind the kinds of critical thinking that happen. Um, sort of ever go beyond the sort of premises on which um, on which these on which these platforms are based. I don't know. I'd have to do more thinking about that. I feel like I'm not I'm not quite there yet. I, um, uh, but there's something about being able to sort of gather all that human capital and energy together yeah. in one place, right? That I kind of wish that yeah that could happen in the arts. Yes. I mean, I should say, I should say, let me just say the visual arts, because I think it does happen in places like theater and whatnot, but mm-hmm. the visual arts. And, yeah. and with concerts and, and, and music and, and things like that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. I think it is, it is the, the things that are most often on the wall that are kind of seen as these individual accomplishments and then they're viewed individually rather than as like a collective experience. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And yes, I mean, I listen to some of that talk radio and the uh the analysis and the all of that and it's it's helpful to me as a fan and I enjoy it as a fan and I just 
I feel like it's still, and it is critical thinking and it's thinking about sports um, and analyzing it sort of over and over again. I just, Mm. I long so much for us to project our knowledge of other worlds onto sports besides just the sports world. So I just, mm-hmm. I want, I want there to be a space for, for that to happen where sports is not, is not separate. It's, it's intertwined with, with all of these other forces. And, um, that is what I want my talk radio <laughs> host to be, to be saying and to mm. be, to be using. But, um, yeah, I just think sometimes it falls short in, in looking at the, the full picture rather than just specifically, uh, this one play or this one player or this one game rather than there being a full understanding of how that came to be. Right. And how it came to be is a really good question to ask, right? Because, I mean, one, if we go a little bit deeper <clears throat> and we talk about how this particular player came to be or how this particular team came to be, then we would end up having conversations around masculinity, right? Mm-hmm. Like how masculinity is is imagined by the people who train these athletes, by their fathers, by their coaches, by the athletes themselves. Um, we would talk about what what the sort of range of um, expected responsibilities within that particular construction of max- masculinity. What those what those what the range might look like. Um, I, I mean, for example, one a really super interesting thing to me that happened in the in the sports world that kind of blew up for like a day, at least on Twitter, like a day or two, and then just mm-hmm. went away. And I suspect it went away because guys in the, well, women, men and women in the sports world really were uncomfortable in talking about this. But you remember this thing happened with Dwight Howard, where it turns yes. out that he was uh, fooling around with several transsexual um, women at the same time. Like, I mean, yeah. like, Clearly, it was it was he was more than one, and the woman, one woman went on Twitter and was like, um, she was basically blew blew him up and said um, blew up Howard and said, look, this is what's happening, and he told me he was that he was only with me or something like that, and it turns out that he's going to these parties and he's partying with a lot of different transsexual women, la la la, uh, and for a day. It seemed that it was a few months ago that I recall encountering this on Twitter. It seemed like for a day people were going back and forth, like, oh my God, like, I can't believe that this is a shame and guys, you know, do this stuff and they're on the down low mm-hmm. and you shouldn't be doing it. And then there was some stuff that was like very sort of transphobic and people were saying, yeah, isn't it, uh, look at people were saying things like, Oh my God! I didn't know this about Dwight Howard. He's whatever, you know, whatever adjective they use. Sure. And other people would clap back and say, "You can't do this. Don't try to shame trans women. It's not about that. It's about him being dishonest." Um, I can imagine, and I, w- I remember thinking to myself, "Wow, I wonder for his next game, what it's like in that locker room, <laughs> in, yeah. among his buddies in the locker room. Like that locker room must just be quiet." You know, like right before the game, and he's getting suited up. It must just be quiet, because guys are just super uncomfortable talking about that. I imagine. I mean, I'm I, again. I'm imagining like these super masculine men would be super uncomfortable talking about 
Um, one of their number being really attracted to trans women. Yeah. And I think that we have not developed a way to dialogue about it in the mainstream media mm. that is both um, because the difference between if there's an issue with a man who is um, dating a um, or, or sort of fooling around with a cis woman then mm -hmm. it's and then maybe cheating on her or whatever it's like it's very mm -hmm. easy to say what is right and what is wrong but because we're still um trying to uh sort of suss out this this language and and what we want to use and and how we want to be allies uh mm -hmm. yeah and then this whole thing of masculinity just like shoots another sort of divisive issue into that Mm. Yeah, I don't think that we've learned how to talk about masculinity um, <clears throat> in any sort of sophisticated way, at least not, not, <clears throat> not collectively, not publicly yet. I mean, I think there are people out there who are talking about this in very useful ways, but, um, you know, the closest that we, we have come really is, is to talk about toxic masculinity. And yes, there is such a thing as that. And I know because I'm partly a product of that. I grew up in a household that was very sort of patriarchal, and my father just sort of expected um, me to be, <clears throat> excuse me, to behave in a certain way because I'm a man, and expected a woman at the end of the of the Thanksgiving meal to just um, wash up everything and clean up everything while the men sat in the living room and watched the game. You know, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I think talking about toxic masculinity is an important step but it's not the whole conversation because there's a way in which and i think this is this really gets to but it's really important to understand it's not just men constructing a kind of toxic mm -hmm. masculinity it's women as well women um help mothers sisters girlfriends uh help in in affirming that construction right and saying that men should essentially you know, quote unquote, man up in certain ways. And if they don't, then certain women just aren't going to fuck with them, right? Mm -hmm. Certain women are just going to not, just, just, you know, you, well, you know, I mean, the, there are ways in which uh, it, it's a collective endeavor sure. to construct masculinity in these ways that are really, um, self-destructive and just kind of stupid, right? Just not, if you think of your partner as a kind of, I don't know, uh, asset, as a kind of, um, as a kind of bit of social capital, or you think of your partner as someone who is your possession, or you think of your partner as someone who is um, um, j junior to you, someone who you should be able to control. Like all those things, those kinds of ways of looking at romantic partnerships are clearly screwed up. Mm -hmm. There's a problem there. And, and I think we need to be able we haven't yet, but we call, we need to find ways to talk about these very difficult issues publicly without 
sort of collapsing into this it's a relatively easy um, uh, uh, name calling. Um, it's not, it's, I think there are many aspects of toxic masculinity and I would like to be able to be a part of these conversations where we start to take it apart and look at all these constituent pieces. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, where it's not the uh, situations might not be so obvious where it's more of an underlying, underlying uh, sort of, yeah, just factor that, that is always present. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think that that is what could undo maybe other large issues as well as not thinking about when they're so overt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, of course, also naming those things as well, but that it's just how they factor into the more subtle details. Indeed. Yes. Um, so I think we are almost running out of our time. Um, mm. But I, I had a question for you that I had thought of asking you about since you are a question asker. Mm-hmm. Uh, and <clears throat> this is, a yeah, it just is more specific to the podcast. But I was wondering if... If hyperallergic or if, if when you were writing, you were asked to go interview Adam Silver, the commissioner of the NBA, as mm-hmm. to uh, write something about him or write something about the NBA. Um, mm-hmm. First off, would you have any interest in that? And second off, if you did decide to, then what would you ask him? What would be your questions? If you could ask him anything, what would be your questions? Hmm. Interesting. Um, I would have to think rather carefully about that because, I mean, yes, I would be interested. I would, okay. but I, I'm also be wary because the problem with talking to people in those positions is that they are practiced at deflecting, right? Mm-hmm. So I can ask intelligent probing questions, uh, and they may find ways to just sort of not answer them. I mean, I, I, I don't mind pushing people yeah. uh, in interviews, but I suppose <clears throat> I would be wary precisely because of that, um, that issue. What I would want to ask him, mm, I suppose I would, I'm interested in what mechanisms the NBA has um, generated in the last, few years. I mean, I suppose since he came on as commissioner, or is that is he a commissioner? Yeah, that he's right? the commissioner. Right. And since he's come on as commissioner, I'm interested in what mechanism they put in place to protect guys who come into the NBA at a very young age and don't really yet know how to manage themselves or manage their money mm-hmm. um, so that they don't end up leaving the game Poor and destitute. Yeah. Uh, I like to know how, how they are at the top management level thinking about essentially protecting these guys. Um, I'm interested, I suppose I'd be interested in talking with him about what his uh, thoughts on, or what he's trying to do in terms of expanding the reach of the NBA, because I know that they've been sort of looking into expanding into China and other places. And 
I suppose I'm interested in that sort of what they, yeah. what, 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 how, how, how they're thinking about um, the reach of the NBA globally. Uh, what else? Um, yeah, I suppose I'd be interested too in talking to him about ownership because I actually find myself not. I don't know what what's the word. I am. Not skeptical. I'm unsure, I suppose, of the practice of having one person, typically it's a white man, own a team. There's something about that that just sounds very sort of plantation-y to me. Yeah. Very sort of like, yeah, very sort of white overseer. Um, I was saying to someone else today, and here's one of those places where Sports could intersect with art. I was saying to someone, oh, it was just in my talk on, on Thursday at the New York Academy of Art with Sharon Loudon. I was saying that I like the idea of uh, sort of, what's the word, village ownership. Now, I mean, that's not really the way people talk about it, but I'm just making that up. Village ownership of, let's say, a museum or an art institution, like the way the town of Green Bay got together and collectively bought the Green Bay Packers, mm-hmm. right? That They collectively own that team. And I love that idea because I think that people will be invested in a different kind of way. And, uh, and I think it has, that has at least potential benefits for uh, an art institution's model. Yes, definitely. Um, I, yeah, so I want to talk to him, I suppose, about whether he sees a value in that model, and if he does, what top brass of the NBA are doing to potentially implement those sorts of models. Yeah, those are the things I'd be interested in. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that because the, the culture has become so much about the individual in the NBA as far as if you like a player and they change teams, you might just start rooting for the team that they go to rather than continuing to root for the team that they were on, even if it's in your right. hometown. It's so much about that individual's story and skills and all of that. And I just, um, I think that having you be a part owner or be a part what whatever the word is, um, mm. as far as the city goes, could just make you more invested in that particular place and that particular team rather than the individual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, LeBron James is really instructive of that. Right. Um, be- um, because I think people end up, you know, you know, he's a hero for a lot of people. And, and actually, rightly so. Like, I have to say, just as an aside, like, compared to Michael Jordan, LeBron James is such a better human being. Just like a, just a, he's just like a, a good human being. Like, honestly, like, Jordan is kind of a... Jordan was always kind of a prick, um, from what I read. Um, whereas LeBron actually took his money, and he actually created a school. And, I mean, it's just... And, and this is a guy who is at the... He's at the top of the game. Um, is earning more money than, you know, Jesus. Right. And and he's steady. Like he doesn't get into scandals. You're not hearing him. You're not hearing about him. Like 
being with a gang of prostitutes after the game. Yeah. You know, you're not hearing about him getting drunk and slovenly. You're not hearing about him cursing out uh, uh, journalists or following him around um, and getting into fights at Burger King. Like, none of that. <laughs> none of that. Like, the guy's, like, he's, he's good. You know what I mean? Like, he's good. That is amazing. Yeah, he is quite, um, I mean, he's just a hero in so many mm. ways. And mm. uh, he's a great guy who seems to understand how the NBA works and how celebrity works. And he handles himself so well. Mm. And I grew up loving Michael Jordan, like wanting to be him and having mm. a crush on him and all the sort of mm. feelings wrapped up into one. And mm. I have now realized that, I mean, you know, that I liked the idea of him and he's, he, his behavior in many ways, not like the sort of breaking the rules, but his lack of investment back into communities or his half-hearted, mm-hmm. his half-hearted mm-hmm. attempts just mm-hmm. falls so short. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to project what I think someone should be doing it's just when you compare the two it's really when you compare LeBron and Michael Jordan it's so hard to not just say oh yeah LeBron seems to care so much more about the future of the world mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think I will let my childhood dreams of Michael Jordan live on and just not think about his flaws um, mm-hmm. and then just like invest mm-hmm. my support into LeBron Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Great. Well, I really appreciate you making time for this. Mm-hmm. And it was great to talk and and learn more about your thoughts. Yeah, so I appreciate you. you. I appreciate you inviting me, Abigail. It was a really good conversation. I genuinely appreciated having you.